For those listening, we're reading from Mark chapter 7, verses 1 to 30. The Pharisees and some of the teachers of the law who had come from Jerusalem gathered around Jesus and saw some of his disciples eating food with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. The Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing, holding to the tradition of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash, and they observe many other traditions, such as the washing of cups, pitchers, and kettles. So the Pharisees and teachers of the law asked Jesus, why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders instead of eating their food with defiled hands? He replied, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites, as it is written, these people honour me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. You have let go of the commands of God and are holding on to human traditions. And he continued, You have a fine way of setting aside the commands of God in order to observe your own traditions. For Moses said, Honour your father and mother, and anyone who curses their father or mother is to be put to death. But you say that if anyone declares that what might have been used to help their mother or father is Corban, that is, devoted to God, then you no longer let them do anything for their father or mother. Thus you nullify the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and you do many things like that. Again, Jesus called the crowd to him and said, Listen to me, everyone, and understand this. Nothing outside a person can defile them by going into them. Rather, it is what comes out of a person that defiles them. After he left the crowd and entered the house, his disciples asked him about this parable. Are you so dull, he asked, don't you see that nothing that enters a person from the outside can defile them? For it does not go into their heart, but into their stomach, and then out of the body. In saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean. He went on, what comes out of a person is what defiles them. For it is from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these evils come from inside and defile a person. Jesus left that place and went to the vicinity of Tyre. He entered a house and did not want anyone to know it, yet he could not keep his presence secret. In fact, as soon as she heard about him, a woman whose little daughter was possessed by an impure spirit came and fell at his feet. The woman was a Greek, born in Syrian Phoenicia. She begged Jesus to drive the demon out of her daughter. First let the children eat all they want, he told her, for it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. Lord, she replied, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Then he told her, for such a reply, you may go. The demon has left your daughter. She went home and found her child lying on the bed and the demon gone. Have you ever experienced a time when someone you know well and respect and love acts out of character? And not just in a surprising way, but in a way that disappoints you. A way that gives you pause to wonder, have you really understood them after all? You really want to give them the benefit of the doubt, 
but you aren't really sure how to square what they've said or done and make sense of it. Because when we read the Gospels, we come across many instances in which someone in need is seeking Jesus out. Uh, The tormented, demon-possessed man, uh, the quadriplegic who's lowered by his friends through a hole in the roof, the desperate, hemorrhaging woman who grasps him in a crowd. Every time, Jesus responds instantly with compassion. He heals and, and often he applauds people for their faith as well except when he doesn't. Because now we come to this story of of Jesus encountering the Syrophoenician woman. And as Mark recounts it, this woman has a daughter who's possessed by an unclean spirit and she's begging Jesus to exorcise that demon. And rather than responding with instant compassion, Jesus meets this woman's plea with a dismissal. He says, let the children be fed first, for it's not fair to take the children's food and throw it to the dogs. Dog? You might be thinking, dog, that's not so bad. I love my dog. Dogs are pretty great. In fact, lots of people these days treat their dogs as if they're their children, actually. So, no big deal. But in first century Palestine, dogs were not quite the pets in the way that they are today. So some of them may have been household dogs or they might have been work dogs, uh, but they weren't cherished pseudo-family members in the way that we see it now. More commonly, actually, dogs were scavengers or menaces. They would roam the streets looking for food to eat. Uh, Often that would include the carcasses of unclean animals, even human remains, so certainly they were treated as unclean themselves. So there's, there's really nothing fond about this expression at all. We can't massage it into a term of endearment, no matter how hard we try. And I think that makes this a really tricky passage at face value. Because if Jesus is, is really saying this, then actually it's a pretty horrendous thing to say to a vulnerable foreign woman. It's approaching a racial slur even. To call someone a dog in this context is to say that they're of lower status. The basic meaning of of this kind of statement is to say that Jesus has come to minister to the Jews first and not to the Gentiles. So what do we make of that response? Well, actually, it's been explained a few different ways depending on who you read. And I think most or even all of these ways attempt to situate it within the context of Jesus' life and ministry, within the larger story of the gospel, uh, which is generally good practice in biblical interpretation. So let's take a look at a few of them. Uh, Well, firstly, we uh, we might understand Jesus' initial reluctance in terms of his ministry focus. He seems to be travelling mostly incognito in the region of Tyre. He's spending time with his disciples, perhaps he's recharging his batteries. The passage tells us that when he arrives, he enters a house and he wants to keep his presence secret. He wants to kind of fly under the radar. Uh, and we see, you know, from what we've read already, that he's sort of he's been around in Jewish territory saying incredibly risky things. Uh, So, you know, perhaps he's come north into the land of the Gentiles to lie low for a while. Uh, Perhaps this woman has just caught him in a particularly human moment. He's conscious of his priorities. The good news goes to Jews before Gentiles. And he just just doesn't have time for this interruption. 
And all good ministers set boundaries, right? We can't help everyone. We can't be everywhere at once. We can't say yes to every request or we're quickly going to burn out. And what good are we to anyone then? So a wise person does weigh their actions according to their specific call and capacity. Or perhaps he's exercising a slightly different kind of wisdom. At the time, miracle workers were not uncommon. Uh, We've already seen Jesus' reluctance through the Gospel of Mark to be known only for his healing exploits and for that to be kind of confused with his greater mission. In these Gentile, Gentile parts particularly, he's preceded only by reputation. So perhaps he's particularly sensitive to that danger. He doesn't want to be mistaken for one of these divi- uh, divine men who are sort of trade in, in superstition and in magic. Uh, the power of God, as we see it, evokes and is uh, prompted in response to faith. So possibly he pauses in this moment to enact, uh, to elicit that response of faith and therefore to distinguish his own actions from those of a traditional miracle worker. Other readings of this passage have argued that actually Jesus really was prejudiced against Gentiles as a result of his own worldview. At least in his humanity, the argument goes, that we may understand him as having inherited some of those biases and uh, prejudices uh, that would have been part of the Jewish culture in which he was brought up. According to this view... Jesus is actually part of the problem and the woman is teaching him a lesson in tolerance. Now, I want to stand back from that view for a sec and say I think it is important that when we seek insight into biblical texts, we read widely, uh, we consider perspectives that we wouldn't come to on our own, but I don't really find this explanation ultimately very convincing because I think it runs up against some pretty firm claims about Jesus' identity that we find elsewhere in Scripture. For example, that he lived a sinless life. And I think it's also possible to acknowledge Jesus' uh, particular location within a time and culture without suggesting that he was trapped by those limitations. So if we dig further, I think what we're actually seeing is Mark is using a rhetorical device, one that's actually quite common in Greco-Roman writing at the time. What he's doing is he's putting the Pharisees' words in Jesus' mouth to make a point. This is where the, the length of that passage will come in. Because this little story comes right after Jesus has been calling out the Pharisees for their hypocrisy for their failure to understand what really makes a person unclean. If we imagine it, they'd have been right with him, perhaps, as Jesus makes this response to the Gentile woman, like celebrating the takedown. So when she challenges him with this response that even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs and he heals her daughter after all, well, then this is an event that confronts their practice and their assumptions about what purity is all about. So in that context, we can see that Jesus' admonition earlier in the passage that a person is defiled not by the foods they consume, by what they put into their body, but rather by the motives and the desires that spring from their heart is already preparing the ground for this more practical lesson. 
We might see him then as, as playing devil's advocate, if you will. He's, he's sort of throwing out a casual remark that conveys reluctance, but all the while it's, it's actually setting up this clever retort that drives his point home. So then rather than sort of getting one over him or teaching him a lesson uh, or persuading him to change his mind even, the woman becomes a full partner in this object lesson that is illustrating both the extent of the problem of Jewish and Gentile relations uh, and the important steps that Jesus is taking to overcome them. So on initial reading... I admit this passage is one that gives me pause. It was that, how do I make sense of what Jesus has said here? Is this really consistent with the Jesus that I've come to know and love, uh, that he would act in such a way? But on reflection and on, on doing a bit more reading, I come away with the insurance that he remains the person that I believed him to be, and I was right to give him the benefit of the doubt in that reading. And let's not forget the Syrophoenician woman. We only have this this brief snapshot of her life, but I found myself wondering about her quite a lot as I was thinking about this message. Because her action is is clearly that of a desperate mother. And I wonder, you know, what else had she tried? She can't have known all that much about Jesus. Uh, Reading through the rest of the gospel, we see that even those who are closest to him are sort of still coming to a gradual awareness of his true identity. So she's probably only got rumours to go off of when she first approaches Jesus for this miracle of healing. But despite, or perhaps because of being a Gentile, she does, however, express a confidence in Jesus that puts most of his own people to shame. She's the only person in the whole Gospel of Mark to address Jesus as Lord. Uh, She cleverly parries his rebuff with her own counter-parable and he just appears really delighted with her response. Uh, He casts the child, as a result, he casts the demon from her child even at a distance and that sort of healing from a distance is also a unique occurrence in Mark. The only time that this happens in the whole Gospel of Mark. And I think it's interesting as well, again, to go back to context, that we find this chapter sandwiched between two very similar miracles, but with one quite significant difference. In Mark chapter 6, we have the famous account of the feeding of the 5,000 with just a few loaves and fish. And this is a miracle that that takes place among Jews. But in chapter 8, so the following chapter, we have Jesus feeding a multitude of Gentiles with more than just crumbs in his miracle feeding of the 4,000. So perhaps his exchange with the Gentile woman here is preparing the way, at least in the heart of his Jewish companions and, and his observers, for this expansion of his ministry that we see taking place. So this gospel account, I think, is yet another reminder that Jesus acted to challenge human boundaries, the divisions that we put in place ourselves between clean and unclean, between in and out. He deals out a lesson about the importance of heart purity rather than ritual purity, and he follows that up by actually working powerfully among people who were considered unclean in the ways that don't ultimately matter here. 
So we don't often find ourselves today talking in terms of clean and unclean, but perhaps we do still sometimes find ourselves making judgments on the basis of lesser criteria. So I was thinking about what that might look for us, how that might look like for us today. And one thing that that comes to mind for me is uh, the difference of sort of theological disputes or biblical interpretation. Because I think it's definitely important to work out a well-informed understanding of theology. And, And often this is done in conversation with a range of interpretations and positions that we may not end up supporting ourselves. Theological college is a great place to do this. And I also want to say that having dialogue with contrasting positions is not a concession that anything goes or saying that all positions are equally valid either, although it might be a humble acknowledgement that all of us are limited in some way and we can't really lay claim to a complete, perfect understanding ourselves. But when we run into trouble, I think is when we start saying things like, or thinking that people who take this view or that view are out, that they're excluded from the kingdom of God. Because in both word and deed, as we've seen in this story today, Jesus taught and is is still teaching a new covenant that crossed old boundaries in powerful ways. And that's a reality, I think, that has to transform our own engagement with difference. So let's pray. Lord Jesus, let us be bold in bringing our needs before you. We know that you offer abundant life to all, not just crumbs, Lord, but the whole feast. But not everyone knows this, and there are lots of people in the world still desperate for a crumb. A crumb of healing, a crumb of justice, a crumb of hope. So help us to speak up for those people who don't have enough of a voice of their own to help in building your kingdom, a kingdom in which there is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, neither male nor female, all are one in Christ Jesus. Amen.